The information on this podcast is for educational purposes only and does not contain or constitute and should not be interpreted as any form of medical advice or opinion. You should always seek the advice of your healthcare provider about any questions or concerns that you may have. Hello everyone, my name is Juliana Aiken. I'm the host of the Unfiltered podcast and a co-founder of Unfiltered. Today I'm interviewing Morella Divo. She's a counselor and clinical hypnotherapist. Since 2006, she has helped her clients transform their pain into their greatest source of personal power. Whether it's healing from anxiety or the wounds of sexual trauma, Morella's clients reclaim their right to thrive and their ability to consciously shape their lives. By training, Morella is a trauma-informed mental health counselor with two master's degree in counseling from Columbia University. She's also a clinical hypnotherapist, an NLP master, an EFT practitioner and Reiki master. Through her own personal healing journey, Morella has overcome deeply painful traumatic experiences and become the creator of a thriving life. She has full conviction that no matter the challenge, everyone can do the same. In today's episode, we focus on trauma responses. Identifying, understanding and addressing trauma responses can be transformative for your healing journey. After this episode, you will have a better understanding of what is a trauma response, what are the most common trauma responses and triggers, how to identify if you are experiencing a trauma response and how to address the root cause of the trauma response. Morella Devo will also share actionable strategies and coping mechanisms for those looking to take a proactive stance on their healing process. Let's get started. What is a trauma response and why is it important for survivors of narcissistic abuse to know about them? Yeah, you know, and I looked at all the questions and I prepared some notes. So I'm, you know, look over just to kind of like keep track of some of the things that I wanted to say. There's a lot that we could say in each of these questions. So I'll, I'll try to um, keep it somewhat brief while still, you know, hopefully giving a, 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 an answer that is helpful, right? Um so that is actually a really big question. What's a trauma response? That alone is a big question. And why is it important for survivors of, of narcissistic abuse? You know, it's important for anybody who's experienced trauma, right? Um, so, you know, I, I let me let me talk about this for a little mo- for a moment. So, any here's the thing about trauma. It, it's really hard to say that there can be a human being alive that hasn't experienced some form of trauma, right? So we all have experienced, you know, we have all had experiences that could be somewhat categorized as, you know, difficult or traumatic. Now, what we're talking about are typically experiences of trauma where there's either a severe threat or a risk to someone's well-being, someone's life, you know, their own life, their own well-being, their own integrity, right? So, you know, crazy accidents, sexual abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse, you know, narcissistic abuse um, is usually inside of the emotional, sometimes physical, sometimes also sexual abuse, right? So narcissistic abuse is typically relational trauma. So it's important for everyone to understand, you know, that trauma is a really common thing, that severe trauma, it actually is a common thing. And uh, it's important because until we resolve trauma, it is shaping how we show up in all of our lives. So everything that is happening to us day in and day out on a daily basis and in our relationships is almost like coming through the lens of that trauma, 
right? It's almost like the trauma is like the the glasses that we're wearing. And so everything that we're experiencing is coming through that filter, right? So, you know, when people, whoever submitted this question, survivors of narcissistic abuse, you know, is probably referring to someone who potentially typically um, grew up with a parent who maybe had narcissistic personality disorder. Um, you know, there are other forms of personality disorders that are also create trauma for children, you know, borderline personality disorder, antisocial personality disorder, dissociative personality disorders. This is when a parent, a primary caregiver has a personality disorder. And one of the hallmarks of the of pers many personality disorders is people don't have the capacity to see another person's needs. So that parent wasn't able to see that child's needs. And so there's, you know, for that um, child's growing up, they grow up in an environment where they're not seen, you know, sometimes they're mistreated, right? And so that creates, you know, a form of relational trauma or attachment trauma. And it's really important to know that that, you know, that was your history, right? Now, let me get back to the first part of the question. What is a trauma response? So a trauma response is, you know, I, I was sitting with the question. I was like, well, it's a big question because there is an infinity of possible trauma responses. It's almost like asking, I was thinking it's almost like if we were to say, what is an intelligence response? Well, there's like all sorts of signs of intelligence. Intelligence can show up in an infinity of ways. So a trauma response can show up in almost every possible way in our ability to focus and our ability to relate to each other. Um, so, you know, and we're get, we're going to get into the different kinds of trauma responses in the next question. So maybe I'll save some of that for, um, for that, uh, that second question, but, you know, it's really helpful to start learning how trauma can show up these different categories of trauma responses, because then we start to realize, Oh, that, that's happening to me, right? And then we realize this isn't just how I am because a lot, a lot of times we don't realize, oh, this isn't just a part of who I am. This is my personality, right? It's, this is the trauma that's shaping how I am reacting in these situations, right? And so trauma responses, before we get into the next question, the, the, the classic or the, the core definition of a trauma response is that it's an involuntary, it's not a choice. It's an involuntary, automatic, instantaneous. This is the way we use the word triggers. Involuntary, automatic, sometimes even extreme reaction to something that is happening. And that something that is happening is the trigger. And that something that is happening is a totally normal thing. Somebody walked into the room, right? And boom, there's a trauma response. Or, you know, somebody touched you in a certain way and there's a trauma reaction, right? Um, somebody gave you a look, somebody used a particular word or, or, or there's a scent. Um, I think I wrote some examples. Um, yeah, I, I have a client who, you know, was sexually assaulted by a group of people. And so in social settings, when there's a group of people, she's now aware that she starts to become like she needs to look at the people and make sure, you know, am I safe? Because she starts to notice that she's not feeling safe and she's trying to read the room really um, carefully. Right. So what's happening to her, you know, it's just a group of people. And sometimes, you know, as she's worked through this, she has gotten herself so much far, you know, so far 
where she can now be in social settings and she realizes, oh, yep, there it is. I'm starting to feel a little bit activated, right? So it's helpful to know what are what trauma responses can, you know, how they can show up because we can do something about it. We started off and I said, everyone has experienced trauma pretty much, right? And um, what I wanted to clarify is that it is very likely that every human being has gone through some form of traumatic experience. It doesn't mean that everybody who has had some traumatic experience stays in what we would call, you know, we're talking about, we're using the phrase uh, trauma response, right? It doesn't mean that just because you went through a traumatic experience, you're going to have a traumatic response. For example, you could have four people go through the exact same traumatic experience, and maybe only one of them has, you know, post-traumatic stress, right? Where the trauma responses keep active. And it has, you know, it has to do with a variety of things, right? Um, Their own, you know, kind of, I'm going to use something we haven't talked about, um, their own attach, their own healthy attachment or not, right? So this is a different kind of like whole set of conversation that is about attachment theory, right? If someone has really secure attachment, right? They have really healthy relationships, really healthy connections. They're really kind of like, let's just say healthy emotionally, then they can go through a traumatic experience and have the ability and the strength to kind of like move through it and then and not be, let's just say traumatized by the experience, right? So, you know, everybody, it's um, it's really hard to find someone who hasn't gone through a very, and you know, and the severity of trauma can also range, right? There could be really extreme trauma and, you know, ongoing trauma. Um, and then there could be, you know, a traumatic experience of witnessing something horrific, for example, seeing a horrific accident, you know, that is a traumatic experience, right? And so almost everybody alive has gone through some form of experience that it could be called, oh, and even, let me just say something else, um, very painful or difficult life experiences, right, can you know, it's like, it's the spectrum of trauma, what constitute, there's a very um, clear definition in, um, in the US and the DSM um, diagnostic book, right, for mental health disorders, there's a very clear definition of what trauma, what constitutes trauma in there, right, which is either experiencing or witnessing or knowing of something horrific, right, a very, a threat or something horrific, some happening to someone. However, there can be very painful experiences that don't necessarily meet that description, right? Um, like attachment trauma or, you know, witnessing, you know, things in childhood, you know, right? So there. what I'm trying to say is almost every human being has experienced very difficult, painful, even traumatic experience experiences, but whether or not, it doesn't mean that everybody is going to have, you know, post-traumatic stress or trauma responses, et cetera. So I just wanted to clarify a little bit of that because I, I know I said like everybody's <laughs> I'm like, oh, I want to, I want to, you know, clarify that a little bit. And then um, I also used a phrase a couple times. Um, I, I used a phrase called relational. Well, I, I said relational trauma. Um, and I also wanted to say a little bit more about that, that there can be something called attachment trauma. And especially the first question, the person who submitted the first question about, you know, experiencing narcissistic abuse, right? 
Um, so, you know, children who grow up with a parent with a severe, you know, personality disorder or severe mood disorders, um, or, you know, when a parent is going through a tough time, there can be what's called attachment trauma, where the child doesn't receive the consistency of attention that they need from that parent in a healthy way in order to for form healthy attachment. And so when that when that attachment isn't healthy, there could be attachment trauma. And again, that also kind of could be a whole range of, you know, a, a scale of, you know, people who have some attachment issues to full-blown attachment trauma from, say, a parent who had, you know, really terrible narcissistic or, um, you know, antisocial personality disorder, and they were very abusive to their child. So I just wanted to add a little bit more about those two things. Does Thank you. <laughs> yeah, that was really, really comprehensive. Thank you. And it gave really clear understanding of what is trauma response and why it's important to, you know, know about them. I think that that was, uh, yeah. Thank you for that thoughtful response. And mm, yeah. and like you mentioned that you want to save some for the next question, which is mm -hmm. what are the most common trauma responses? Perfect. Yeah. You know, I in this question, I, what I really like is we can get into, because there are, you know, basically kind of four categories of typical trauma responses. It doesn't say it mean that it, it's the only ones, right? But, you know, I was just saying that a trauma response is an automatic involuntary reaction right and a trauma response not only is it automatic and involuntary it's a whole body reaction you know people's hearts start you know beating you know they start to feel a certain way right and that whole reaction is driven by the autonomic nervous system so the autonomic nervous system is the part of the nervous system that um, is responsible for the fight flight reaction. In other words, the danger reaction, our automatic reaction to I'm perceiving a threat, right? I'm seeing something that is threatening to me and the whole system fires up into fight or flight. So those are the first two categories that I'm gonna get into all of them. But that what we understand as fight or flight is the whole set chain reaction of activities that happen inside of the body, that nervous system gets the heart beating really fast to circulate blood really quickly so that we can fight, you know, so we can run away, right? So flowing, um, the blood flows to the brain so we can make quick decisions. Do I climb that tree? Do I grab this knife and fight my attacker, right? And so fight or flight is what we most know of. And that is um, one expression of the, the stress and trauma response. There are two other expressions that get less talked about, but they're getting, you know, they're increasingly being studied and it's freeze and fawn. So fight, flight, freeze, and fawn. And those are the four categories of, you know, the typical reaction to extreme stress, right? And so fight is what I just described, right? I'm going to literally fight the threat, right? I'm going to punch them. I'm going to stab them, right? Um, flight is fleeing, running away. Freeze is what in the US we call the deer in the headlights, right? Where it's like all of a sudden there's this frozen reaction. If you've ever like, you know, been driving down the road and your lights hit a deer, the deer freezes, right? It's like, um, human beings can also have that reaction in extreme, it's extreme stress, right? They're frozen and they don't know what to do. It's like they can't think, right? 
Um, and then the other one is, uh, the fourth one is the fawning response. And the fawning response is typically in human beings. So let me just say in animals, the fawning response is like the little baby bird that all of a sudden is so stressed, but it lets you hold it in, in its hand, right? Or the chicken that, you know, becomes, you know, if you, they say you can hypnotize chicken, but really what it is is extreme stress where you can... <laughs> Hold the chicken and the chicken will stay very still and it will let you grab it and hold it, right? So in human beings, this is where, you know, connecting to la the last question about narcissistic abuse, the fawning response in human beings typically is seen in relational trauma where the trauma or complex trauma where the trauma has been prolonged and say, for example, a child has been, you know, has had an abusive parent and they have learned to play play nice to be you know so the fawning response is to be very gentle to you know try to you know not get the abuser you know the threat all riled up and maybe they'll leave us alone right so how it shows up so how these trauma responses show up in people who've experienced trauma um they look a lot like the original kind of like reaction under the severe threat. So if someone typically, and here's, let me just say something else. So the type of trauma reaction that someone will have, right, when, when they're triggered, is going to be the same kind of reaction that they had originally, right? So for example, war veterans, right, who experienced trauma while they were fighting, then you see that that war veteran who has PTSD, their trauma response when they get triggered is what? To fight. So they, they get aggressive, they get angry, they verbally attack people, they have problems with rage, right? When they're feeling threatened, so if someone says something to them, they feel, you know, someone's, you know, calls them by, calls them a name or, you know, if they start to feel threatened, the person who has trauma and their original trauma reaction was to fight, their trauma response is going to be to fight. They're going to be very aggressive, right? The second group, the flight response. So how it typically looks like in people who have, you know, who are triggered and they have a trauma response that is to flee, they might leave, you know, they leave the room. They disengage from a conversation if things are getting heated, right? They kind of check out, right? Um, emotional distancing. They're feeling threatened, you know, by the environment or by someone, and they it's like they no longer care. They're like, oh, I'm not, I'm not here. You know, it's like I'm here, but I'm not here, right? So the flight reaction is like kind of disengaging or leaving. And sometimes they do actually leave. I need to leave this, you know, I'm in a party and I'm feeling threatened. I need to leave. I just need to leave. I need to get out of here, right? The third one, the freeze response. So the freeze response, that deer in the headlights, like, can't do anything. The way that normally shows up, most commonly shows up, it can be a little free, a little bit of a freeze, right? That say, another person is at a party and they're feeling threatened and all of a sudden they're like, it's not that they're choosing to not talk and disengage they can't talk. They're fuzzy. They're confused. This is what we also, what we call dissociation, right? So the freeze response turns into dissociation. The person, you know, has, is numb, kind of confused. They're not sure what's happening. They maybe forget, right? They have lapses of time where they can't even remember what was happening. 
Um, so the freeze response typically will lead into dissociation, right? Totally checked out, out-of-body experiences, right? The person who is experiencing, experiencing trauma and kind of left their body through dissociation, then they're really easy to kind of leave their body and just not feel, not know what's happening. You know, they're kind of checked out. Make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so loss, when, when people feel like, you know, reality doesn't feel quite real or they don't feel totally real, things are confusing, you know, that those are different ways in which dissociation shows up. And then the fawn response um, is what people, what we normally would call people pleasing, where the people who have the fawn response and trauma they're the ones that are wanting to, if they sense tension or they sense that someone's aggressive, they want to make sure that they, that that person feels okay. They tend to that person. They want to make sure that, you know, everything's okay. They, um, they're, you know, almost pathologically nice or passive. You know, they try to placate the abusers or the tension in the room. So those are kind of like the four different pathways that people can start to recognize, oh, I tend to get aggressive or defensive. Defensiveness is another kind of fight response. Or I tend to flee the situation or I check out. You know, I just like check out of my body. I, you know, dissociate. Or I am always kind of like watching what's happening in the room to make sure that everyone's okay, right? Mm, okay. I, I know you mentioned that that uh, depending on the kind of, that if the, if in the original trauma you reacted in a certain way, either you know you fought, you flee, uh, you mm -hmm. froze, uh, that then yeah. yeah, and then when it kind of something triggers you, you tend to behave in a similar way. Uh, but can one person have kind of uh, let's say that they usually like most of the time mm -hmm. their trauma response is fight, but can it sometimes be like yeah. that? Sometimes they freeze. Or can they have oh, yeah. like many? At the same time. Uh, yeah, there could be a variety of responses, um, particularly if, you know, for people who have had complex trauma or a variety of experiences, right? It's almost like, to a certain extent, it's almost like the degree of stress um, can shape the different kind of reaction, right? So, you know, um, this uh, there's one client with, you know, complex trauma who had a very intense um freeze response, right? A lot of dissociation in her life, lots and lots of dissociation. Um, so when she was getting very, you know, when she was triggered, she would typically dissociate, right? Not, couldn't even understand what was happening, right? And then she would be in her head. And then her secondary kind of a reaction was to pick a fight. So then she was, you know, the next day, the next few days, she would, you know, be thinking about how she needed to end relationships or, you know, um, because she was so activated, right? So there can be a range of reactions, but typically there's one that tends to be more dominant. Um, but it's not like, you know, and again, there's a universal possibility, right? So there's a, there's a universal possibility. I have another client who, um, has a very strong kind of fight reaction when she's 
um, when she's triggered and it happens with her husband, when she, she's, she's been doing amazing, she's kind of deactivated. I want to use her example towards the last question when it, the person who asked, um, how do we create a trauma-informed support system? But um, this person has a fight reaction initially when she's triggered, um, but for a long time she was using, oh, this is another way of fleeing. She was using alcohol. So, um, so for a long, long time, she was using alcohol to flee the, you know, the emotions, right? It's like things are getting a little bit uncomfortable. So alcohol is another way. Alcohol substances are a way of, of escaping. Mm, okay. Thank you for, for those examples. Mm, then what do you think? What are some common triggers for trauma responses? That's a great question because a trigger can be anything, literally anything, because it's anything that automatically brings the person back to the traumatic experience. So, you know, um, like I was saying, this client just now, she, she loves her husband and her husband is the greatest guy. And she's like, this is a great guy. But there are some times when he comes to put his arms around her and it's a particular situation where maybe if she's on the couch or whatever, and he comes and he, and he gets really close that action of getting really close is a trigger for her, right? Um, I have uh, a client for whom being, um, this was an old trigger of hers, being in a group of women, a certain kind of woman, woman with a certain kind of look, right? Or a certain kind of expression would trigger her. She's like, can't trust this person, right? Um, I, I know someone who, uh, for whom, uh, bathtubs were a trigger, right? Could never get into a bathtub, did not like bathtubs, you know, always asked for hotel rooms without bathtubs. Um, for let's say the war veteran, right? A balloon popping could be a trigger, right? The sound of a pop, bam, right? So a trigger can be any sort of sensory stimulus that takes us instantaneously, unconsciously back to that moment, right? And so it could be any any sensory stimulus. It can also be an internal sensation, right? So um, for example, a, a classic trigger for, for panic attacks, and a lot of times people who have panic attacks, they have had, whether they remember it or not, they have had a traumatic experience in the past. Sometimes they don't remember why the panic attacks got started. Sometimes they do, right? But then the sensations of that can be attached to the panic attacks start to be a trigger. So a person who has had panic attacks and they start to feel like their heart is beating a little faster, they start feeling that heart beating faster, like, oh my God, I'm gonna have a panic attack and it triggers a panic attack. Mm. So it can be any sensory stimulus, something we see, something we hear, something we feel, some expression, some sensation inside of our body, anything could be a trigger. And it's really about what that trauma experience was. Like Morella said, the trigger for the trauma response could be anything, and it really depends on what you went through. Uh, I wanted to explore this further, and especially in the context of narcissistic abuse, and I tried to come up with some um, common possible triggers that people who especially have gone through narcissistic abuse might resonate with. So I have here a few examples, and one like very obvious Exam the first example that came to my mind was gaslighting comments. 
those of us who have gone through narcissistic abuse, we have been repeatedly told that our reality is wrong. So anytime if we are then again in a situation where someone tries to doubt our reality and we notice that, that can be very, very triggering. Also, um, control over personal choices. So any attempt to control minor aspects of personal choices like what to wear or eat can be triggering because we know that narcissists seek to control their victims to maintain dominance. And if we have been in a narcissistic relationship, they might have, you know, even controlled what we eat, what we wear and all that's minor like stuff. So if you have gone through narcissistic abuse, you might get very anxious or overwhelmed or, you know, triggered when your personal choices, even trivial ones, are questioned or try that somebody tries to control them again. Boundary violations. This is a huge one. So we know that narcissists don't respect boundaries. And while you are in a re- relationship with a narcissistic person, there's probably a lot of boundary violations going on. So we might get very, very triggered and highly defensive or anxious if somebody tries to, uh, you know, either trespass our boundaries or they are ignored. Also, one other very common trigger could be uh, ignoring or stonewalling. So especially uh, many covert narcissists, but narcissists in general often might use silent treatment as a form of punishment or control and So if we again are in a situation where someone is ignoring or ignoring, yeah, ignoring us, that can be very, very triggering. Constructive criticism could be also a trigger because if you have been in an environment where you are constantly criticized and uh, made feel and believe that that you are not enough so then uh, even after narcissistic abuse even a very constructive criticism that is not intended to you know harm you might be very triggering because it might trigger your internal beliefs of not being good enough that were instilled into you by the uh, narcissistic abuse i also put passive aggressive behavior here because many narcissists are very passive aggressive and they indirectly communicate displeasure and are indirectly hostile and you know all that so we might become very hyper vigilant to notice any small signs of passive aggressive behavior and sometimes we might get it wrong and anyways it can be very triggering uh, because of the past abuse that we went through so here here were a few of these common triggers that especially people who have gone through narcissistic abuse might have. Then how can someone identify if they are experiencing a trauma response? Yeah, that is a great question because it takes, you know, observing yourself, right? And hearing podcasts like this or talking to a therapist and starting to realize, oh my gosh, you know, I don't just have, you know, a lot of people might, you know, some people might say, for example, I don't just have social anxiety, right? I have social anxiety because something happened, right? Or, you know, just hearing some of the, these responses. So, you know, um, Peter Levine, who is the the the, uh, the person who developed um, somatic experiencing therapy, who wrote several books, Waking the Tiger, 
uh, is one in an unspoken voice is another one. So he is like the champion. He, he started the whole kind of somatic uh, uh, experiencing method for healing trauma. And he categorizes, so I'm going to read some of the different symptoms, right? He categorizes different stages of symptoms. So, you know, the people who are listening to this, they've heard of the four different kind of like types of um, stress reactions. Here are a bunch of different symptoms. So he said, Peter Levine says that early on, you know, having those fight flight reactions, uh, hyper arousal, like being, you know, agitated or being, you know, super stressed, like early after trauma, that can be the reaction. Um, freezing, dissociating, sometimes, um, especially in adults, kind of denying, oh, no, it was nothing, nothing happened, right? Or feeling helpless, right? I'm feeling like there isn't anything you can do. Different kinds of reactions, right? Later, you know, maybe months, years afterwards, um, those kind of early reactions start to turn into hypervigilance, right? Like always kind of that person that I described, always kind of monitoring the room, right? Hypervigil or looking, I have a client right now who's always looking out the window, always like, oh, what was that? I have to, you know, the hypervigilance response. Um, flashbacks, right? So all of a sudden being transported, right? Nightmares, night terrors, having exaggerated emotional responses to things, right? Being overly emotional, something that, and, and sometimes people notice, I am, this is a little bit too much for what happened, right? I'm feeling super emotional. Um, having a really intense startle response, you know, somebody walks in and you're, and that startle response is extreme, right? Um, having mood swings, um, a reduced ability to deal with stress, um, hyperactivity, difficulty sleeping, you know, hyperactivity, the person who's, it can't sit still. Oh, that's another way of um, kind of, you could call it either fleeing or fighting is like the workaholic can't stop moving, can't stop because, you know, any stopping opens up the possibility of noticing what else might be there. Right. So hyperactivity. Oh, got to do this. Got to do that. Got to do this. Right. Um, and difficulty sleeping. Um, and much later, Peter Levine says that there can be panic attacks, extreme fear, extreme fear of dying, extreme fear of going crazy. I have a client who's who has that, that there's so much that she's been holding in and feeling that she's afraid she's going to go crazy. Um, and like she's going to lose her mind, right? That she's going to lose herself. Um, extreme depression, you know, people who are just like, can't get themselves out of depression, um, or just, or numbness is another, you know, so extreme depression is feeling totally, totally depressed or numbness is can't feel anything. Can't feel love. Can't feel warmth. Can't feel excitement. Can't feel, um, we talk dissociation, like chronic dissociation is, is also something that can happen later, um, avoidance behavior, like we talked about alcoholism, drug use, uh, or avoiding certain places, avoiding uh, certain types of situations, or so avoiding certain people. Um, I had a client who started realizing that she wasn't wanting to leave her house. And so um, that she was starting, she couldn't go into big stores. And then that started to be like, I can't leave out, leave my house, right. And this is where Peter Levine and um, Bessel van der Kolk are extraordinary in helping people realize that a lot of chronic health issues have their roots in trauma. Autoimmune diseases, chronic fatigue, um, 
again, the client that I have that is constantly checking out the window, we have talked about because she now has chronic fatigue, um, severe chronic fatigue. And we, we, she has, she now understands that she has severe chronic fatigue because she has been on high alert. Like she has been in fight or flight her whole life since she was a little girl. So it's like being like for years, right? So her nervous system, her adrenal glands, they're like, can't do it anymore, right? So um, there are all of those, you know, and again, you know, just going, helping people to recognize, you know, these different kinds of symptoms. I'm going to go to the four categories again, like I mentioned before. So in fighting, you know, people can ask themselves, do I get into a lot of arguments? Do I have road rage? Do I not that everybody who has gets into arguments or has road rage has trauma, but you know, it's worth exploring, you know, do you become easily defensive, right? Um, or get, you know, get into big arguments over small things, right? In the flight uh, group, you know, do you check out in the middle of conversations that are getting a little heated, right? Just kind of like, uh, or do you suddenly walk out, right? Or do you engage in numbing, distracting activities like gaming or, you know, obsessive gaming or alcohol use or, you know, um, in the freezing, do you lose time that you just don't remember what happened, right? Um, do you get foggy or sleepy, right? Are you easily confused? I, I have a client that when her partner starts to have an intense conversation with her, they start to have an argument. It's not so much flight that she just doesn't want to have the conversation anymore. She freezes and then she can't think of anything to say. She's like, he's like, I say something. It's just, I can't, I don't know what to say. Right. And then in the funny, you know, are you a people pleaser? Are you always trying to win people over? Do you seem like you're really good at reading the room? Right. So, you know, just starting to hear these things and explore for for yourself, you know, the people who are listening to this, you know, what are some of the ways in which I, I, uh, I tend to react? So here's an exercise idea that I want to share. And, you know, maybe people listening to this, you know, they can um, pause the recording, you know, find a piece of paper and a journal, you know, a pen and, you know, and do a little bit of a check-in, right? Um, oh, here, just other, you know, I've mentioned some of these things, but already I'm just going to look at my, at my notes, you know, just get curious, right? If you use a lot of alcohol, you know, it can't seem to, you know, is it a daily thing, a regular thing, right? Shopping, uh, gambling, marijuana use, video games, are you a workaholic? Are you always busy? You know, can't seem to stop. Are you obsessively organizing things, cleaning things, making things tidy, um, or, you know, engaging in some of the avoidance behavior, right? So here's the exercise. And so I'm gonna, you know, there's three sets of questions, right? Because how people can start to help themselves is to start to recognize what are my reactions? When do they happen, right? Because then you can start, then you need to start looking for the tools to help you cope with those, those reactions, to help you develop the resources, the strength, to not get, you know, to then start having some power over the trauma response, right? So here are the questions. So the first question is, write down some situations that feel activating or heightening or triggering for you, 
right? What are some of the situations where you tend to get like, I'm going stick, to stick with the word activated, heightened, right? That you feel like you're starting to have some sort of reaction, right? And so, you know, if you're listening to this and you want to do this, right, just take, you can pause now and take a few minutes to write down what situations seem to be triggering for you. It could be a list of things. Okay, next question. What exactly happens to you, right? Just start to look, you know, what physical sensations do you feel in your body? Do you feel your heart beating? Does your, you notice your breast? Do you, do you start to feel like you're, you clench? I, I was working with someone this week. You know, she knows that she clenches her jaw, her neck and her shoulders get really tight. It's like, you know, she's like holding on guard, right? Um, so what are the physical sensations in your body, right? Or emotionally or mentally, do you feel foggy and confused, or do you feel like you get really in your head and you're like looking at everything and, you know, overanalyzing everything that's happening? That's another, you know, way in which the trauma response starts to show up. Um, so what's happening? What happens to you in those situations physically? Be curious. What happens mentally? What happens emotionally? Can you start to find the words that describe how you feel emotionally? Right. So. You know, take a moment to to write about those things. And then that that the the next phase is to just really start to pay attention to what you and what you do when that happens, right? So what's what then unfolds from that, right? Just more it's furthering the exploration right because the more that you pay attention so people can you know pause here if they want to do a little bit more writing right but the more that you pay attention the more that you can recognize when it begins to happen right so that you start to notice okay yeah the situation right is i'm i'm in this typical situation and and here are the sensations that are starting then I think we have, again, one of these big questions and kind of moving towards the solution, like uh, now that we know all this information, uh, what do you think, what are some healthy coping mechanisms for trauma responses? Yeah, you know, this is a really interesting question, uh, particularly because of the use, uh, because of the word coping, using the word coping, right? So coping means managing, right? When it's happening, kind of managing. And it's a healthy word because we can learn how to cope. Before we get into that, what I want to emphasize is that coping, coping is about managing while it's happening. It doesn't mean that um, we need to cope for the rest of our lives, right? Because the ultimate goal really is to heal the wound of the trauma, right? To kind of get out of the trauma, get out of the trauma responses I mentioned, you know, earlier in the first half, right? So the ultimate goal is healing, but on our road to healing, we learn how to cope with the trauma responses as they're happening, right? And part of that coping is it also helps us kind of like build resiliency in our nervous system, build resiliency in our bodies. It's almost like we start to learn like, oh, there's a different way in which I can react right? There's a different way, you know, when I start to recognize that these things are happening, there are things that I can do about it. I am not 
let's just use the word, I'm not a victim to my triggers. I'm not a victim, you know, I'm not, the, the, the trigger and the reaction doesn't need to have power over me. I actually have a lot of power and I can find my power to help myself cope and move out of that response, right? So let's talk about what are some of those kind of coping mechanisms that help us turn, start to learn that we can, um, you know, have a different response. So I've mentioned a few already, but I want to get into some examples of um, what, what they each do. So in somatic experiencing, right? So when you, when you start to use somatic experience for, for trauma, what you start to do is you start to get really connected with your body and the sensations in your body, uh, the sensations of different emotions, because every emotion has a sensation, right? If you're excited, it has a particular sensation of your in your body. If you're anxious and panicky, it feels different, right? So starting to learn and really become experts in how our body feels, right? We, we start to recognize when something's happening, right? Even becoming aware of like, oh, there's tightening, there's, you know, tension, there's pain even, right? Um, and then with somatic exercises, and we're going to do one today, um, with somatic exercises, you can also start to help your body um, enter a different experience, right? So it's, you can maybe start, because then what you can start doing is you start noticing, oh, I'm starting to feel a little activated. I'm starting to feel that tightness, that fluttering or whatever the sensation may be. But now I have some other somatic tools, you know, we could use breath. We can use, um, we're going to do today an exercise, somatic exercise called pendulation, right? Where you notice a sensation that is uncomfortable, but then you can direct your attention to another sensation that maybe is a little more neutral or a little bit more comfortable, right? Or you can direct your attention towards something else. So, you know, this is a tool that the more that, and of course you have to practice it, right? So the more that you practice it, the more that it's like you develop the strength, the muscle memory of how to do it, right? like any exercise, right? You can't, I was saying to a client the other day, you can't expect to say, oh, I know what a somersault looks like, you know, backflip. I know what a backflip looks like. And then think that just because you know what it looks like, or maybe you did it once, that when you need to do it, you're going to be able to do it. You can't. <laughs> you have to practice it and learn the moves and develop the sensation in your body of what it's like so that when you need to use it, then it's there and you can use it, right? So you have to practice. In internal family systems, which I love, is really, really powerful work. With internal family systems, we start to learn and teach ourselves how to become the observer of what's happening rather than being inside of what's happening, right? So when people are feeling triggered, they're like, oh my God, I'm feeling triggered. I'm feeling anxious. I'm, I am feeling this, right? In internal family systems, I do this a lot with clients, like let's, you know, push the, that part, you could get a little bit of space and say, there is a part of me that is feeling triggered. There's a part of me that is feeling anxious. And if you're doing some somatic work, you can even say, there's a part of me that's feeling this anxiety and that sensation, this part is in my chest, right? So, in, and the internal family systems goes, you know, into much more, right? But when we start to become the observer of the part of us that is feeling something, we're automatically also saying, well, that's a part. There are other parts of me. <laughs> There's a part of me that is actually seeing that part, right? So now I am not the whole experience. I am seeing that there's a part of me that is having an experience, 
right? And I can observe it. And I say, yeah, that part of me is really panicky. That part of me is afraid. That part of me is worried that something bad is going to happen. And so, and it leads to the next thing in uh, the my third strategy or tech methodology uh, modality that I really like is neurolinguistic programming. So neurolinguistic programming, we're very conscious to using the language that helps us kind of create distance from the traumatic reaction because our language shapes our thoughts and our thoughts shape a lot of what we're feeling, right? And so when we use the right language, like a part of me is feeling this, I'm already creating distance, right? A part of me is needing to feel a little safe, you know, need, need, feeling the need to feel safe, right? Is different than saying, I'm not feeling safe. I'm feeling unsafe, right? Whereas if I say, there's a part of me that would like to feel safer, right? There's a distance. There's, you know, when we, we, when we use words like I'm, I'm in panic right now, I'm like, I even say the words I'm in panic and I feel like, oh my God, maybe I am in panic. Right. But if I say there's a part of me that is feeling and using words that are, you know, toned down can help as well. Um, rather than saying I'm, I'm panicking right now saying, you know, with internal family systems, there's a part of me. Right. And using a word that's maybe we can find the way to tone down the words. There's a part of me that is feeling afraid. There's a part of me that is feeling really um, activated. Right. So I use words that, you know, tell my nervous system where I'm wanting to go. Right. I don't want to use words that escalate. Right. I want to use words that help too. So neurolinguistic programming is phenomenal at the use of language. Right. And then there are other tools that people can look out. Um, one of my favorite tools that I have used a lot over the years is EFT, the tapping technique. And tapping integrates a lot of these parts because as somatic, you know, we're tapping on different points on the body. We're using very specific language, which connects with neurolinguistic programming, um, and it creates distance. So um, the, the tapping uh, tool the, using EFT can be really, really wonderful. And then practicing um, getting into mindfulness, right? All of these also use mindfulness is that we're starting to pay attention to the sensations in the body. We use breath. We use kind of like the connection with the body, right? So do you want to ask anything or deepen any of this? Because I'd love to do an exercise, a, a somatic exercise. Yeah, I think uh, if we do the exercise, it even kind of deepens what you just mm -hmm. said. I mean, that's, mm -hmm. that's a great way to deepen it. So I would love to, um, yeah, that we do that now. Okay, great. So I'm going to combine. I'm going to combine a couple things um, in this, just so people know if they want to look for these somatic exercises, they they know what to look for. So we're going to do grounding, which is about um, grounding is really important because it's about helping yourself come to the present moment, right? A lot of times, trauma responses are you know the whole body the whole body, the whole nervous system reacting as it did in the past, right? Reacting to the now as if it were back then. And so grounding helps uh, helps us orient our body to um, the fact that we are here. We are not back there. We are here, right? So grounding um, is about coming into the here and now and coming into the body in this moment, right? Then doing a quick body scan, right? Doing the body scan is paying attention to What's happening in my body right now? 
developing that awareness, right, of what's happening in the body. And then we're going to do, um, I mentioned pendulation, right, where we're going to practice switching, observing something that maybe isn't so comfortable, right, to, you know, directing our attention to something else that feels maybe more neutral or maybe even pleasant, right? Um, and you don't have to, when we do the exercise, I'm going to say, you know, see if there's a part of your body that is feeling uncomfortable and we'll use that part as you know the activated or uncomfortable part but if you don't have anything that feels uncomfortable that's fine right we'll switch we'll pendulate between two different experiences right and we'll go back and forth so when people and i'll say a little bit after we do that so um Let's do that. Um, and what will be helpful for people to think about is, you know, when they did the writing earlier of, you know, what are the situations where they get triggered, right? Um, you know, they could potentially think about the sensations that happen in their body and they can, you know, um, maybe use some of those sensations, see if they can find those sensations in their body when they do the pendulation. It's not necessary, but, you know, just something to think about. Okay, so I'm just getting, um, I'm sitting in my chair with my feet on the floor. Um, and I'm going to invite anybody, everybody listening to this, if they can, to get their feet on their floor, if, if possible, if not, it doesn't matter, we can also just kind of ground through the sensations um, of, of our body making contact with the furniture. All right. So this can be done eyes open or closed, whatever's more comfortable to you. I'm gonna close my eyes for those who feel comfortable closing their eyes, you can do that. If not, you can just look at me. And I'm just gonna invite you to take a deep breath just to notice the sensation of your breath. And just by starting to do that, you're already starting to bring yourself to the here and now. You're noticing that your breath is happening. And just notice where your attention goes as you focus on your breath. Does your attention go to your chest? Does it go to your belly? Does it go to your nose or your throat? Where? Where do you feel your breath? Just be curious about that. Curiosity is a great thing. So be curious about your breath. And just notice that for a couple of breaths. How does it feel when you breathe in? And how does it feel when you breathe out? Good. And now I'm going to invite you to direct your attention to your feet if they're on the floor, on the ground. And if they're not on the ground, you can direct your attention to your seat. What part of you is making contact with the earth, with gravity? Maybe both. Maybe your seat, maybe your feet, right? Imagine that you can feel the pull of gravity kind of pulling you down into your seat, into the floor, the ground. And you can maybe move your toes a little bit or you can, you know, wiggle a little bit, not a lot, just wiggle a little in your seat and just feel and then stop for a moment and feel what it's like to be held by the earth. And see if you can relax into this a little bit. Just take a deep breath and notice you're perfectly, safely held by the earth. Mother Earth, 
supporting you. Sometimes it's even fun through your feet or through the base of your spine. Imagine that you're growing roots. So if you'd like to do that, you can. You can imagine that you're growing roots, like energetic roots out of your feet or out of the base of your spine or both. Growing roots down into the earth. And that you can spread your roots far and wide and deep. Good. And you can imagine, too, that maybe you can bring up energy from the earth up those roots into your feet, into your base. Good. We're going to add a little bit of grounding to the here and now in another way before we do a body scan. And so... I'm just going to invite you to gently open your eyes if they were closed and just notice three things in your space right now. I'm looking over and I see my mug of tea. What's something you see in front of you? And then look in a different direction, maybe over to the other side and see what do you see over there? I see the wall. I also see a side of my hand lotion, and then look in another direction, maybe over to, way over to the other side. And what do you see over on the other side? I see my bookshelf and some crystals that I love, a little sculpture. Just notice what you notice in the space around you. Good. And now you can come back to center. And with that, with the grounding and, you know, kind of also orienting to your space, what you're doing is noticing that you are safe, that you're in a safe space, and that you can remind yourself that you're safe at any time when you're feeling a little bit charged, right? You can do this, connect to the ground, Mother Earth, with your breath, to your space. Good. Now we're going to just... Check in with the body. Very quick, not necessarily super deep body scan, but just notice, what do you notice in your body? What sensations do you notice in your body? Is there any place that is tight in your body? I'm noticing that my shoulders are a little bit tight. And you can move them a little. If you feel a little tightness, you're welcome to move that. Just Honor what you're noticing in your body. Maybe you're hungry. And if you don't notice anything in your body, that's also perfect information as well. See if you can help yourself draw your attention to things that you could feel in your body. Like, can you feel your seat, the furniture underneath you? Notice those sensations. Can you feel your hands where they are in space right now? How do you know where your hands are even if you're not looking at them? Notice that. And now that you're connecting with your body, see if there's any sensation that draws your attention. And take a couple moments. Is there any sensation in your body drawing your attention? 
Just notice that. Be curious about the sensation. Where does it start? Where does it end? What are the edges? Does it have a shape, the sensation? And then see if you can get really curious about the quality of the sensation. Some sensations feel tense and tight and hard and heavy, dense. Others feel tingly or airy, light or fluttery. All of these different words to describe sensations, just see what you feel. And it may be a neutral sensation, it may be a positive sensation, or it might be an unpleasant sensation. Whatever it is, I'm now going to invite you to find a completely different sensation in your body. See if you can find something that feels neutral or positive. Maybe it's a part of your body that feels very light or very little. Maybe it's your pinky finger or one foot, or the space in your head. Find any other part of your body that feels different from the one that you just visited, and maybe neutral or pleasant. Can you find that? If you can, great. If you can't find, if you're struggling to find a sensation in your body that feels a little better or neutral, then you can open your eyes and find an object around you in your space, something that's lovely to look at maybe, or maybe a little neutral. I'm looking at one of the crystals on my, or maybe a mug of tea. Notice that, right? Something that's neutral. Just... You could take a breath and notice that. Great. And now go back to the original sensation, that one that your mind, your attention was directed to. Go back to that sensation. Notice that. Just for a moment. And then go back to the second one. If it was in your body, go back to that sensation in your body. Notice that for a few moments, or to the object outside of you. Whichever one feels, whichever one feels better, lighter, or more interesting, go to that one. Now come back to the original one, the one that drew your attention. Notice that again. Is it changing in any way? doesn't have to, just be curious. Go back to the second one. And maybe take a deep breath as you're looking at the second one again or observing the second one again. All right, now just come back to center and just, just notice what you're noticing. There's no right or wrong. This is all about being curious and being and observing what happened for you. Again, there's no grading. 
just be curious. What are you noticing in your body? Is it anything different in your body from when we started? Great. And whenever you're ready, you can gently come back. Thank you. I at least felt different. <laughs> Good. Yeah. And it's all about becoming aware of what our body does, right? It's like, oh, yeah, my shoulders are a little bit different. I was interested in the sensation. I was drawn to my stomach. You know, no particular reason. But, you know, it's helpful to develop these strategies of saying, oh, I can bring myself to the here and now, right? Um, grounding, grounding and orienting. We did a little bit of orienting. It can be really helpful when someone's getting activated in a trauma response to say, okay, hold on. I'm feeling a little activated, right? You're noticing, yep, I'm getting that sensation. Okay, let me take a deep breath. I can feel my seat. I can feel my shoes. I'm going to look around me. Yep, I'm in this space. This space is safe, right? And that starts to bring the nervous system to a different state. Mm, and wasn't you mentioned before this, the term kind of directing the attention? What was the, it was um, speed? What was it? It was something um, when so, you direct from like, if you are. Oh, pendulating. Feeling, yeah. Can you say it yeah. again? Pendulating. So oh, it's, yeah, yeah. it's from the, um, from a pendulum, right? So you know ah. how a pendulum does this, right? Yeah. So you're going from one to the other, one to the other, right? And so pendulating is we find the one that maybe is a little tense or uncomfortable mm -hmm. or a little bit, you know, that drew our attention. And then we direct our attention to something else, right? Mm -hmm. And so doing this kind of builds our ability to take our attention from the thing that is uncomfortable to something else, right? It's kind of like a little bit like what we were saying before, rather than being inside of the experience, creating a little distance and say, nope, I can observe this experience and I can also direct my attention to something else, right? And so we start to build the ability to get ourselves out of a, a trauma reaction by saying, I can, I can look at something else. I can pay attention to a different sensation in my body or a different object in space, right? Even if it's totally neutral, I can focus on my cup of tea, right? Mm -hmm. I can focus on that pretty picture over there or that tree that is lovely, right? And use those strategies to get our nervous system focusing somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, like I said, at least it's helped me like because it's been a busy day. So now it's like almost I, like I feel more actually like focused and like yeah. having more energy almost. Yes, exactly. It's so interesting that even though this exercise was somewhat relaxing, right? Because mm -hmm. we just, it was kind of a quieting, uh, quieting exercise that we feel, we can feel more alert. We can feel more centered, more energized, like, oh, okay. All of the buzz is a little mm -hmm. bit quieter and I can mm -hmm. be a little clearer. Yeah, it's like cleansing your brain and yeah. <laughs> insides. Yeah. 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 It's like, you know, some people when they have their phones, they have so many apps running on there and then you can just mm -hmm. clear all. Exactly. <laughs> like, I love that. You know? Yeah, yeah. Closing <laughs> all the apps. Yes. Yep, you're right. 
It's like, and this is why meditation, mindfulness, breath work, all of these little, you know, exercises are so simple. I mean, I don't know how long we did that. If it was like 10 minutes or five Mm -hmm. minutes, I'm not sure, but it doesn't have to be a take a long, uh, a long time. Yeah, exactly. Even, yeah, I agree. Um, Then we have quite big question (laughs) and that's like, how can someone address the root cause of their trauma response? Yeah. So this is a really big question. And I think it's going to be a short answer because I honestly working with an expert, right? And so getting to the root cause of the trauma response really is, um, I mean, it's not to say that people can't do it on their own. They can, right? You can, um, buy books on, you know, somatic, there are great work workbooks on somatic experiencing. There are uh, trauma workbooks that use uh, narrative therapy, right? So they guide you to, you know, help yourself write to, you know, kind of move through the trauma. So following those books could be a way. Um, but it's going to require, you know, getting some tools to help you. So once you start developing the awareness that you have a tra- trauma response, um, then the work is helping yourself get the tools to, there, there's almost like there's two layers. One is to help you start working with your whole body to help yourself out of or move through those triggering experiences. Because here's the thing, triggers, it doesn't mean that when someone gets triggered, it's like, okay, I need to avoid this for the rest of my life. I have trauma and I'm going to avoid, no, it means you, you start to develop awareness and then working with somatic tools there. Here's my, fa- I'm just going to mention my favorite um, trauma informed uh, modalities that I use in my practice and that um, are so powerfully effective. My, my most recently recent favorite is internal family systems. There's a huge boom of therapists using internal family systems. Um, it's just really, really wonderful. So internal family systems, somatic experiencing, also very well documented. Lots of lots of somatic experiencing practitioners. Um, then there is neurolinguistic programming. It's less common. It doesn't get so talked about because there aren't necessarily a lot of therapists who are trained in neurolinguistic programming. Uh, there are a lot of coaches that train in neurolinguistic programming. Um, then there's EFT, the tapping technique, emotional freedom technique. And of course, there's the power of community. And then there's, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy um, that, you know, have been studied and, you know, been proven to be effective. I find that the other modalities, internal family systems, somatic experiencing, neurolinguistic programming, they feel much more effective and they like they create traction, right? So how do people get to the root cause of, of their trauma response is to address the root trauma and to heal the original wound from that root trauma. And you do that ideally working with a trauma-informed practitioner who then has the tools, has the space, and they can kind of lead you through it, right? Um, so um, yeah, the other thing, so I'm going to use this because I mentioned community, I'm going to use this, this opportunity. There are also groups, right? So I have a group that I facilitate for people who've experienced sexual trauma. 
at any point in their lives, right? So in that group setting, what's also wonderful about group um, for, for trauma survivors is the community support creates this space where um, it, it creates this automatic kind of like nervous system resetting environment, right? Because all of a sudden you, you're in a space where you realize, oh, I'm not alone. I'm not alone. And the group, the group has my back. Bessel van der Kolk writes um, in The Body Keeps the Score, he writes about um, communities in Africa that he has studied and that he, he has seen they don't have PTSD. Because when any member of the community experiences a traumatic event, the community comes around them and they dance together, they drum together. It's almost like they help that person kind of shake it out of their system and get that nervous system back to center and being like, no, you don't need to stay in that trauma reaction, in that trauma response. So, you know, the power of community. Here's another thing, you know, the power of community and ancestral um, healing Who's to say that, you know, working with a shaman, working with a, you know, a traditional ancestral healer isn't valid? It's totally valid, right? There are many different modalities that, you know, know how to help people move through and overcome the trauma that they experienced. To me, it sounds like, yeah, in order to address the root cause of the trauma response is basically what I'm hearing is that you kind of, you need a space where you can explore that original mm -hmm. wound in order to heal. It's like, it would be ideal if it's a trauma informed practitioner mm -hmm. that you can, you can create this space with you, or if you can somehow create that space, uh, by yourself, or, mm -hmm. you know, for example, maybe you are in a healthy relationship, and there is your partner who can help you through that, or mm -hmm. you are a part of some community where mm -hmm. you together create that space. But anyway, you need this space where you can, you know, work through, and then right. you need tools and tools like mm -hmm. you said, like internal family systems and books and workbooks, and you just mm -hmm. kind of find out what are the tools that feel most not maybe perhaps natural to you, mm -hmm. most comfortable to you right. that you can use in order to get to the core wound and to kind of really address it and heal from it. And right. yeah, is that, is that yeah. what it is? No, exactly. No, you, you captured it really well. And, you know, as I'm hearing you talk about it, I, there's another kind of thought that came to mind to kind of like encapsulate what you're saying is that to get to the root cause of that trauma response any work that is done is about helping, this is how Bessel van der Kolk might say it, it's really about helping the nervous system and helping the whole body get out, leave the trauma, right? It's almost like going, so internal family systems goes and finds the part that is still kind of stuck in the trauma and say, hey, we can get you out of here. You can let go of the trauma and we can bring you to the present moment. Somatic experiencing works with the whole body, works with the nervous system and say, we can get you out of the trauma response. We can get this nervous system out and then, you know, come to the present moment where there is no trauma. So that's, and then, you know, there is no trauma response because the whole body, the whole kind of psyche, the whole being has left the trauma behind. 
This was part one of our mini-series on trauma responses. This upcoming Monday, we'll explore how trauma responses can impact your life, your ability to form and maintain healthy relationships, and how to construct a trauma-informed support network for yourself. And if you haven't joined our free community yet, I encourage you to do so. We offer therapist-led healing courses, live Q&A sessions, and reflective journaling prompts every week. The link to join our free community is in the podcast notes. If you have enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and share the episode with your friends and family. Have a wonderful rest of your day and see you in the next episode.